Chapter Two of Eyes Like the Sea by Moore Yokoi, translated by R. Nisbet Bain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. I am really most grateful to Monsieur Galifard. I have to thank him for the first distinction I ever enjoyed in my life. This was the never-to-be-forgotten circumstance that when my colleagues, the young hopefuls of the Academy of Jurisprudence, at Ketchkemet, gave a lawyer's ball. They unanimously chose me to be the Elet Anzoyish. To this day I am proud of that distinction. What must I have been then? On the heels of this honor speedily came a second. The very same year the Hungarian Academy of Sciences, on the occasion of the competition for the Teleki Prize, honorably mentioned my tragedy, The Jew Boy, and there were even two competent judges, Verish Martya and Baitza, who considered it worthy of the prize. When, therefore, I returned to my native town, after an absence of three years, I found that a certain renom had preceded me. I also had very good reasons for returning home. The legal curriculum in my time embraced four years. The third year was given to the Petveria, the fourth to the Eurotaria. Every respectable man goes through the Petveria in his own country but the Eurotiria at Budapest. And I had something else to boast of, too. In my leisure hours I painted portraits, miniatures in oil. So well did I hit off the judge of Oishigini, and he did not give me a sitting, either, that everyone recognized him. But a still greater sensation was caused by my portrait of the wife of the procurator, Fiscal, who passed for one of the prettiest women in the town. And yet— Despite all this, when the following Shrovetide the Lord Lieutenant gave a ball to the county, they were something like Lord Lieutenants in those days, I was not called upon to open the ball. Ungrateful fatherland! And who was it, pray, who caused me this bitter slight? A dandy, who did not belong to our town at all, a certain Muki Bagatoy, of whom the world only knew that he had been to Paris, and was a good match. In my rage I had resolved not to dance at the Lord Lieutenant's ball, although I had received an invitation. Moreover, my indignation was increased by the circumstance that rumor had already designated Bessie as the semi-official partner to the opener of the ball. However, Nemesis overtook the pair of them. At this ball Bessie wore a frisure à l'anglais, which did not suit her face at all, and I rejoiced beforehand at the misadventure I clearly foresaw for I was certain that her flying dishevelled hair would catch in the buttons of her partner's dress-coat. As for Muki Bagotoy himself, the first time we cast eyes upon him, my young brother and I immediately agreed that it was an absolute impertinence to be so handsome. Only a romance writer has the right to produce such perfect figures. They have no business to exist in reality. I comforted myself with the reflection that such a handsome fellow must be a blockhead. I didn't know then that dullness was fashionable. Why, even gold has a dull ring. But I was a very inexperienced youngster in those days. I had no down on my face. I did not know how to smoke. I would not have drunk wine for worlds, and I had never even looked a lady in the face. But, as I said before, Nemesis overtook them. The dance opened with a waltz. If I had been the master of ceremonies— I should have started with a kermogiar, 
Ah, that Kermogiar. That is something like a dance. It requires enthusiasm to dance that, and you want eight or sixteen couples to dance it properly, and all thirty-two dancers must dance it with histrionic precision. And that was not an easy thing to do, I can tell you. But then, Bogotoy was all for waltzes. But there's a nemesis. It was the regular custom then for the band to play ten or twelve bars of each dance before it began, and then to stop for a few moments so that the public might know whether the next dance was to be a polka, a quadrille, or a waltz. Muki Bogotoy did not know this. What did he know, forsooth? So when the band gave the usual sign, he took his partner on his arm and started off with her in a fine whirl, till the band suddenly stopped. And they found themselves high and dry at the other end of the room, with no music for their feet to dance to, so they had to sneak back shamefacedly to the place from whence they had started. Bessie was furious, and Muki was full of excuses. You would have thought them for a married couple of six months' standing. Serve them right. I did not watch them dance any more, but sat down in a corner and sketched caricatures on the back of my invitation card. Then I made my way to the buffet to drink almond tea, and gathered round me two or three blasé young men like myself, weary of existence. Let the gay company inside there try and amuse themselves without our assistance, if they could. Suddenly, someone tapped me on the shoulder with a fan. Then I recognized a voice. It was Bessie. What? She said. Not content with flying from the dancing room yourself, you must keep away other dancers also. Come back, sir. A damenwaltzer is beginning. For the privilege of a damenwaltzer, I capitulated unconditionally. Of course, having completed the turn round the room with my partner, I led Bessie back to her mother and thanked her for the never-to-be-forgotten distinction. She had to be off again almost immediately, for the voice of the master of the ceremonies announced a cotillion. The couples flew around with the velocity of will-o'-wisp. But her mother remained where she was, and there was an empty chair beside her. You are quite forgetting your old acquaintances," she said, breathing heavily. She was stout and suffering from asthma. You don't trouble your head about us now. You have become a famous man. A famous man? What? Then does she also know that the Academy of Sciences honorably mentioned my tragedy? No, no. My other fame it was that had reached her. My pictorial successes. We have seen the lovely portrait that you painted. Yes, it was Madame Muller to the life, just as she looked fifteen years ago. Why did you not rather paint her daughter? She is much prettier. But you don't like painting girls, do you? You are afraid it is a losing game, eh? The lady had certainly very peculiar expressions. Of course, I could only reply that I was not a bit afraid, and that if they would let me. I should have the greatest pleasure in painting Miss Bessie. She was gracious enough to give her consent. The only thing was to fix when it should be. It should not be at once, as for some days after a ball, young ladies do not look their best. Then they had to get ready for another dancing party, or were busy, and on Sundays they went to church. At last, however, after much calculation, a day was hunted up on which Bessie was free to sit to me. Then there was another question for consideration: Was the portrait to be painted on ivory with watercolors or on linen with oils? Ivory is better, I insinuated, 
because one can always wipe off a portrait in watercolors with a wet sponge whenever one likes. The lady remarked the self-reproach, and was gracious enough to neutralize it by contradiction. Then I declare for oils, for we wish to keep the picture for ever. I felt that I could have done anything for her. Meanwhile the cotillion had come to an end. Bessie returned to her mother, and the companion also resumed her place. The chair which I had appropriated belonged to her, and resigning it to its lawful possessor, I would have withdrawn, but the lady considered it her duty to present me to the ruling planet of the day, Muki Bogotoy, who was escorting back his partner. She immediately acquainted him with my artistic qualifications, and made it generally known that I was going in a few days to paint her daughter's portrait. On the afternoon of the day appointed I appeared at Bessie's house. I had sent on beforehand my easel and my canvas-bag by our servant. I found not a single soul of a lackey either in the passage or the antechamber. I was obliged to stand there and wait till someone came to announce me, and in the meantime I could not help overhearing the conversation in the adjoining room. "'You are a good-for-nothing rascal yourself, a shameful, impertinent fellow.' I recognized the voice of the mistress of the house. In reply came a protesting shriek. "'Where is there a stick?' cried the lady. At the same instant a hoarse voice replied, "'Madame, vous êtes un frappon.' A pretty conversation, truly. I had certainly arrived at the wrong time. Meanwhile the door opened, and the fluky came in rubbing one of his hands with the other. He was evidently in pain." "'Have you been beaten?' cried I, in amazement, to which he angrily replied, "'No, I have been bitten.' "'What? Actually bitten the footman?' "'Would you kindly walk in, sir? They are waiting for you.' The moment I entered the room this enigmatical state of things was immediately plain to me. The personage to whom her ladyship was meeting out these offensive epithets, and who was returning her such contemptuous replies, was a grey parrot who had just bitten the lackey in the finger, and been chastised for this misdeed. The whole company was in the utmost excitement. There was a large assembly both of ladies and gentlemen. Amongst the latter my eye immediately caught sight of Muki Bogotoy. But the chief personage was the parrot. He was a grey-liveried, red-tailed, big-billed monster, and he stood in the middle of the tea-table in a threatening attitude. Somehow or other he had contrived to open the door of his bronze cage, and in a twinkling he stood in the midst of the tea-things on the covered table. "'Oh, I only hope he won't get on my head,' cried a somewhat elderly lady, holding on to her chignon with both hands. Nobody dared to assume the offensive. The footman who had attempted to seize the fugitive had already been laid hors de combat by the winged rebel, while the parlour-maid declared that she would not go near him if they gave her the whole house— the lady of the house, meanwhile, was making little dabs at the bird with a small Spanish cane, and calling it all sorts of abusive names. But the warlike pet always grasped the end of the cane with its strong beak, while he repaid with interest the injurious epithets bestowed upon him. When I joined the company, I was scarcely noticed, and the lady of the house, in reply to my salutation, I kiss your hand, said, You infamous scoundrel, though she immediately added, I did not mean you. "'You're one yourself,' retorted the bird. "'Come now, find a rhyme to that, Mr. Rhymster,' said Mr. Muki Boigatoy. "'The wretch was apostrophizing me. "'Rhymster, indeed!' "'Don't go near it,' cried Bessie. 
He might bite your hand, and then you would not be able to paint me. They'd terrify me, eh? It only needed that. I instantly went straight for the bird. I would have done so had it been the double-headed Russian eagle itself. Was it divination which made me hit upon the proper word to say to such a human-voiced monster? Give me your head, said I. And at that word the terrible wretch bobbed down his head till he was actually standing on his curved beak, while I scratched his head with my index finger, which gratified him so much that he began to flutter his wings. Then I hazarded a second command. Give me your foot! And then, to the general amazement, the parrot raised its formidable three-pronged foot, and clasped me tightly round the index finger with its claws. Then it seized my thumb with its other foot, and allowed me to lift it from the table. Nor was that all. While I held it on my hand, just as the medieval huntsmen held their falcons, the parrot bent its head over my hand and began to distribute kisses. But finally he went through every variation of the kiss, till it was a perfect scandal. The ladies laughed. Whoever could have taught him? I got the bird during the lifetime of my late lamented husband, explained the lady of the house, with some confusion. Finally, the conquered sphinx affectionately confided to me his name, Little Coco, Darling Coco. But I transferred Coco from my fist to his cage, and put him on to the swinging ring, which he seized, and began to climb upwards with his beak. He was a veritable tripod. On settling comfortably in his ring, he made me a low bow, and cried with a naive inflection of voice, Your humble servant? Positively marvellous! gasped the lady-mother. You ought really to be a tamer of animals. I mean to be. Indeed. And what sort of beasts will you tame? Men. Not one of them understood me. Well, Mr. Poet, joked Muki Borgatoy, the ballad was a success. Now let us see whether the picture also will be superlative. How do you want to see it? So. And with that he struck his eyeglass into the corner of his nose. "'Then you're just mistaken,' said I. "'For when I paint a portrait, nobody is allowed in the room except myself and the sitter.' The whole company was amazed. Everyone fancied that it would have been a public exhibition, and so they had all congregated together to see how a person's eye, mouth, and ear came out. A large round table had been prepared for me, in order that a whole lot of them might sit around it, with their hands on their elbows, and give me general directions as I went along.' That eye a bit higher, that ringlet a little lower, a little more red here, and a little more white there. However, I declared plainly that I would not paint before a crowd. It was the rule in painting, I said. When portraits were to be painted, nobody must be in the atelier but the painter and his model. Barabas, too, always made that a rule. My resolution produced an imposing effect on the company. It's a very nice thing when a man can do something which nobody else can. They had to agree that Bessie and I should sit alone in a little side-room, which had only one window, and the lower part of even this window had to be covered by a Spanish screen, so as to get a proper light. And nobody was to disturb us so long as the sitting lasted. The first sitting did not last long. In oil painting, the image should first of all be painted under, that is to say, with dull neutral colors, in those days I had never heard of such things as a first coating. While it is in this stage the picture is not fit to be looked at, it is absolutely hideous, and the better the likeness, the worse it looks. 
I allowed nobody to look at it, not even Bessie. I locked up the first essay in my painter's knapsack. It was a miniature. At this stage it was quite sufficient if the insetting had succeeded, with a figure in profile, but the countenance quite unfaced, the shadows piled up, but the background merely thrown out tentatively, and the fundamental colors of the dress just insinuated. Every one will see that this last part is the hardest of all. The company was very much deceived in its expectations when it was informed that I had nothing to show it. Every one had expected that in an hour and a half I should have finished the eye or the mouth at any rate. They now thought to themselves that nothing at all would come of it. Well, but will Bessie look pretty in this dress? asked her mother. What could I do at such a question as this but look silly? As if I knew whether Bessie had a pretty dress on or not. All I knew was that I had had to use for it a little English lake, some Neapolitan yellow, Venetian white, and just a scrinch of burnt ochre. I can tell you that it was a very tiresome amusement, said Bessie. The face a little more that way, not so serious, not so smiling. Don't sit so stiffly, raise your finger, don't move about so much. And you've laid so much licorice juice on my portrait that they'll fancy I'm a gypsy girl. I hastened to assure her that this was only laying the groundwork, and that on the morrow it would be a much merrier business. The next day I was there again after an early dinner. In the forenoon I was with my chief at the office. Thus before dinner I was a lawyer, and after dinner I was artist, poet, and reciter. This time there was no company. The picture proceeded briskly, and the members of the family were allowed to come in from time to time, one by one, and have a peep at it. I had now begun to study the face in more detail. It was an interesting head. The face was almost heart-shaped, terminating below in a little chin which was delicately divided by a single dimple. There were spiral-like lips of dazzling red enamel, a slightly retrousse nose with vibrating nostrils, round, rosy-red cheeks with little beauty spots here and there, which I christened black stars in the ruddy dawning heavens. Her densely thick hair curled naturally, and gleamed like golden enamel, diminishing, after the manner of Phidias's ideal Venus, the smoothness of foreheads, and fluttering the most roguish of little ringlets over the blue-veined temples. How could I help learning by heart such minute details when every one of them passed beneath my brush? But what my brush could not possibly reproduce was her marvelous pair of eyes. They drove me entirely to despair. I really believe that even if I had been a true artist, instead of a wretched dilettante, I should never have been able to conjure forth their secrets. Just when I was thinking I had fixed them, her eyes would flash, and my whole work was thrown away. At last I had to be content with a dreamy expression, which pleased me, at any rate, best. The inspecting family trio said that they had never seen such an expression on Bessie's face. Nevertheless they acknowledged, with one voice, that it was a speaking likeness. The head was now ready, the dress was to remain till to-morrow. On that day there was a preference party in town at the General's. Bessie's mother was an enthusiastic preference player, consequently she was not at home. The aunt alone remained as the guardian of maidens, and she used generally to take a nap in the afternoons, or play patience. I don't know who presided over Bessie's toilette on this occasion, perhaps nobody. That clean-cut, pale-pink bodice on other days had given full scope to her charming figure. 
but on this particular day it was more insinuating than ever. It seemed to me as if the frill of English tulle had crept considerably lower down the shoulder, nay, lower still. One cannot imagine a lovelier masterpiece of a creative hand than that bust. And it is a painter's right, nay, his duty, not merely to look, but to observe. A dangerous privilege. My hand trembled, I seemed to freeze, and yet beads of sweat stood out upon my forehead. She, too, seemed to remark my agitation. A roguish flame sparked in her eye. She was now not a bit like her yesterday's portrait. She seemed to be flouting me, and I was putting that treacherous frill of tulle to rights in the picture, putting it where it ought to have been. That is what I really call corjour la fortune. At this sitting the face was completely finished, and the dress also was painted. I thanked the fair, self-sacrificing victim, and told her that she might now look at the picture. It was ready. The girl rose from her chair and peeped over my shoulder. She looked at the picture and laughed in my face. "'Why, you've readjusted the frill of my dress, haven't you?' said she. "'So you wore it like that purposefully, eh?' "'Then there was something you didn't want to see?' "'There was something I didn't want other people to see.' "'Well, now, I've been looking at you for days and days, and I've observed something on you which is very nasty, and which I don't like at all.' I had no idea you gave me so much of your attention. It's only a mere speck, no bigger than the eye of a bean. What can it be? The wart on your right hand. And indeed, on my right hand, just below the thumb, was a not very ornamental excrescence, which everybody could see when I was writing or painting. I cannot cut it out, because it is just above the artery. I showed it to a doctor, and he said it would be a rather dangerous operation. I'll destroy it for you. It won't hurt you. I learned it at school from my schoolfellows. I'll destroy it in a moment. By incantations, eh? Oh, dear, no. It will smart dreadfully. But if a girl can stand it, you can. I consented. She lit a candle forthwith and placed it on the table beside me. Then she produced a darning needle from somewhere. I thought of the other darning needle. Took firm hold of it, shoved it right down to the very roots of the wart, held up my hand and placed the eye of the needle in the candle-flame till it was heated to a white heat. And all the time her wondrous eyes were opened round and wide, and looked straight into my eyes with irises turned downwards. It is thus that the demons of hell must look upon those whom they are roasting. Does it hurt? she hissed between her teeth. She appeared to be in a state of ecstatic delight. It hurts, but it is not the needle. Well, now you can take your wart away with you. Two days after, the calcinated wart fell from my hand, leaving behind it a little speck no bigger than a lentil, and that speck is there still, and is of a whiteness which contrasts strongly with the color of the rest of my hand. And every day I set to work writing, I must needs look at this little white spot, and when I have looked at it long, it seems to me as if her face were appearing before me in the midst of this tiny circle just as it looked then. And then that face runs through all its variations down to the last shape of all, which still startles me from my slumbers. End of chapter 2